Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about a young boy in the 90s. Back when everyone was into sneakers and graffiti and slow, methodical rapping. One fateful day, the boy stumbles on an ancient genie, Kazam, who lives in a magical boombox and looks exactly like American basketball legend Shaquille O'Neal. The genie offers the kid paternal advice, grants him wacky wishes, and teaches him to rap. That might sound like a terrible, misconceived idea built around lazy black stereotypes, a bit like the 1996 movie Kazam, but I think in podcast form, it could work. I wonder what Shaquille O'Neal thinks about it. That's whack! That's horrible. Okay, fair enough. Shaq shot it down. Uh, I guess we'll go with plan B, which is just two guys sitting around talking about movies. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, the man who magically appeared one day when I rubbed a dusty old VHS of The Mask of Zorro, Danny Moran. Hello. On this week, we review The Big Short. No, not my nickname for my penis, but the ensemble drama based around the 2008 economic crash by Anchorman director Adam McKay. I then tackle Room, the Oscar-nominated drama loosely based around the Fritzl case, is a film whose subject matter is so grim, I can't think of any lame joke to put in here which wouldn't be horribly inappropriate. So, uh, just think of one yourself. Room is the nickname for my arsehole, actually. Hey! <laughs> Luckily, as well as that brilliant joke, there's also in the news that Miley Cyrus is going to be in the latest Woody Allen project, and that Joseph Fiennes, formerly of Shakespeare in Love, will be obviously playing Michael Jackson in an upcoming TV movie. Way to fucking give away the news. Why are they going to listen to the news section now when they've just heard the news? Uh, well, if we get this far, <laughs> hopefully there'll be time for me to read all of Moby Dick in the style of Tom Waits in a segment that Katie has sworn to me will make the podcast. Many years ago. <laughs> <laughs> From memory as well. <laughs> Have a little or no money in my pocket. Correspondence. We've had a number of correspondence about The Revenant. Chris Young wrote in with the following. 
Hi Film Chat, I saw The Revenant and I want you to know what I think. On the good side, it is probably one of the most beautiful looking films I've ever seen. Sorry Roger Deakins, but you might actually miss out on that Oscar again. The action scenes as well were brilliant. The whole one long shot thing is used to great effect in those. Then there were the brilliant performances. DiCaprio is good, but he doesn't really do much other than grunt and scream and wince and shiver. Tom Hardy, on the other hand, is amazing. The best I've ever seen him. I haven't seen him in Bronson. Will Porter is also great, so plenty to enjoy. But some bad things. The middle act is really fucking boring. I mean, you know that joke in The Simpsons when Homer tries to jump the canyon on a skateboard but falls and hits his head on everything? It's like that, but really slow and not funny. It drags massively but picks up for the ending. Also, there's a bit of colonial gaze on this film that never really sat right with me. And there's a lot of super cheesy flashback sequences that seem to be so out of step with the rest of the film. So in conclusion, great opening, great ending, tedious middle, though at least in the tedious parts you can gawp at how pretty Canada is. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm just trying to like gauge in my mind what it's like to grunt and wince and scream and shiver. Like, <laughs> oh my god, that was <laughs> Give <laughs> this man an Oscar. <laughs> That was, was insane. Oscar. I didn't even need to make like 12 Oscar nominated films to be a favorite for one with a performance like that. The thing about Roger Deakins, I know everyone feels bad for him because he's been nominated so many times for his great cinematography and has never won. Uh, but this year is a very strong Deakins showing as well because he's a cinematographer on Sicario, which is like an insanely beautiful film. And in a way, it's almost particularly impressive how beautiful it is because a lot of it is just rooms and cars and people chatting. You know, it's not like incredible landscapes. Also, The Revenant was only shot with natural light. So lazy, lazy Lubeski couldn't even be asked to set up some lights. Yeah. Well, poor Deacons, he's got to work out where the generators are going. You know what he's got to like bounce need, the lights. You need an Oscar for the locations manager. Yeah. And whoever is the person who decides what time of day to shoot. <laughs> Lubeski, just some hack he just turned up and it just happened to be, you know, oh, wow. golden you, hour. You, yeah. Oh, well done. Oh, so you point your camera at incredible natural beauty. Here's a fucking Oscar, Lubeck. Come on. Come on. I could do his job. I mean, I'm pretty sure I could have done his job on this film. Yeah. Where's your Oscar for best cinematography along with your acting at Oscar? I can act like Leo. I can shoot like Lubeck. I don't get it. Why am I stuck in my fucking bedroom doing this? <laughs> anyway, enough about how great I am. Heard from another eminent voice in the world of film criticism um, with almost as much authority as we have, Danny. My own mother. She Ooh. sent me an email about The Revenant, which she saw recently. I didn't um, request permission from her to read this email. I'm just doing it. Is that unethical? I don't care. So <laughs> this is what my mum says about it. Grueling stuff, but visually stunning. I understood about 50% of the dialogue, which is largely grunted in throaty rural US accents, but that turned out not to matter as much. There are a lot of very muddy men with matted hair, and it was a while before I could work out who was who. But again, it came down to just needing to recognize the main two, and that was okay. I'd give an Oscar to Mother Nature for being awesome, beautiful, and indifferent to people. Does that oh. seem like a accurate yeah. to the movie? We should get, maybe we should retire and just get your mum and Chris to do the show. That would be good. Yeah. I think they'd have a real rapport. <laughs> Absolutely. I think they'd real, you know, spark of each other. That'd be great. The thing about me and you is they're a bit similar, you know, similar cadences, and people say our voices sound the same. But Chris and my mum, like, the genders are different. They're from different generations. Yeah. There'd be a lot of comedy because he'd be referring to, like, dongles or USBs or something. She doesn't understand. <laughs> She'd be like, what? <laughs> I think she doesn't know what a USB is. I don't know. <laughs> Final message about The Revenant from Georgia Mills. Yo, film nerds, what was up with the dubbing in The Revenant? Was it some creative choice that went over my head? Surely it can't have been a mistake. Please explain. So we didn't really reply to that right away, but she looked into it herself. And um, it turns out that... The language that the Native American characters were speaking was changed for historical accuracy. 
And at many other times, they completely changed what they were saying to go with story changes. Apparently, it was an ongoing debate throughout the film. Alejandro, the director, believed people would be staring at the subtitles instead of the mouths, but we kept insisting to just change the subtitles instead. However, that would most likely offend people fluent in those languages watching the film. Usually, if you have enough time and money, you can animate the mouths to fit the new lines. Do they do that? Wow. <laughs> Sounds crazy. But this film was delayed so much that we couldn't do that. So they made changes to the story, and then they had to change the lines that the Native American characters said which they did with new dubbing rather than just changing the subtitles because they thought that people who spoke those languages would notice and right. be pissed off. But instead, everyone was a bit annoyed by the, <laughs> by the, the mismatch. I wonder, instead of saying, I'm looking for my daughter, was he saying, like, hey, I'll see you next, tu- see you next Tuesday? <laughs> I'm like, hey, see you next Tuesday, you trapper. I just like the idea that, like, this sort of quite serious subplot was originally, like, you know, lighthearted, you know, they're just yeah, talking let's go about... Bowling, yeah, let's go bowling. <laughs> and then they changed it to... Well, we'll never know. Maybe that'll be on the Blu-ray, the bit where they all go bowling. Sam Casey has messaged us. He's talking about a message from James Andrews, which I think was from two... When were we talking about the sound worlds of different movies? That last Two episodes back. Two episodes back. James Andrews sent in this message about um, how The Force Awakens had great sound design and what other movies have good sound design. Sam Casey replied to him. He says, got a response for James. Force Majeure has a great sonic landscape. The crunch of all the machinery in a ski resort does a load to reflect the action of the film. Don't know who did it, though. You've seen that movie, Danny. Is Sam Casey correct? Yeah, there's a running motif about how there's, like, rickety ski lifts going up, and I think it's, like, a metaphor for the relationship or something. So it underscores the drama. Yeah, it's, like, tense, because you're like, ooh, maybe their relationship is just a ski lift or a rickety rail thing, and maybe it will be derailed, or maybe it will be re-railed. To make it more firm. To make it more they firm. They replace the rails with more strong rails. Better ones that sound like nicer. New, this is my new reviewing style. Like speaking slowly and just sort of mounting. <laughs> more and more. my strange, creepy internal monologue as I was watching the film. Ooh, very interesting sound choices. What will happen? Thanks for writing in, everyone. It's always a great pleasure to read what you wrote. I feel like it's a privilege to get to use my voice to say your words. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's fit to print. Woody Allen news, my favorite type of news. We discussed many months ago the announcement that he was going to make a TV series for Amazon, his first TV series, and today. Some casting has been announced. So, obviously, Miley Cyrus is going to be in it. Obviously. Such a Woody Allen type. <laughs> but bookish. <laughs> she's like a young Diane Keaton. Yeah. And she's going to be in it along with sort of comic performer and writer Elaine May, who's famous for writing and directing Ishtar, considered one of the worst films ever made. It's but not also, that bad. It's I've not that bad. Yeah, it got yeah. slated though, right? Famously slated. Yeah, yeah. It was a massive bomb and it's um, seen as being one of the worst movies ever. But it's really not that bad. It's probably fine. So, yeah, she's pretty good. She's also in Small Time Crooks, right? The, yeah, um, she's, she's definitely more a Woody Allen type actor. Yeah. Not least very, because she's already worked for him, but a sort yeah, of New York so. comedian yeah. type. Miley Cyrus, I don't know. Maybe this is third stage Miley. You know, she's done the sort of sex pot, nutcase, tongue out thing like from Wrecking Ball. And now she's like, now Diane Keaton phase. Absolutely. Wearing a huge fat tie and like tripping over her words and being all nervous. Other bits of information we have about the show is that it's going to be set in the 1960s. 
the head of Amazon Studios, Roy Price, said this about working with Woody Allen. Woody Allen is a visionary creator who's made some of the greatest films of all time, and it's an honor to be working with him on this first television series. Woody Allen said in reply, I don't know how I got into this. I have no ideas, and I'm not sure where to begin. My guess is that Roy Price will regret this. <laughs> Which has sort of been his line on the whole thing. And early this year at Cannes, he was asked, or last year, in fact, he was asked about the uh, upcoming TV series, and he said the following... No, it was a, a catastrophic mistake for me. I'm doing my best with it. I'm struggling with it at home. But, uh, you know, I, I never should have gotten into it. And it's very hard for me. I thought it was going to be easy. You know, you do a movie, it's a big, long thing. But, you know, to do six half hours, I figured it would be a cinch. I do a half hour, another half hour, like that. But it's not. It's very, very hard. And I just hope I don't disappoint Amazon. I, I am struggling with it. I'm not good at it. I don't watch a lot. Of, I don't watch any of those television series, really. So I don't know what I'm doing. I'm floundering. I expect this to be a cosmic embarrassment when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, we, li- we liked it when we saw that clip the first time. It's just such classic Woody. But um, I'm definitely going to be watching it. 1960s Miley Cyrus. Yeah, so Woody Allen's going to be in it as well, and we just have to hope and pray that they don't play a romantic. Part. Oh, God. <laughs> when he learned his lesson, ever. He's just getting younger and, like, <laughs> sexier. In inverted My, commas. Miley, you're fantastic. You're wonderful. You're very inspiring. <laughs> and what I'm looking forward to is the photo of the two of them promoting it, where he looks really miserable and she looks really glamorous. There's a lot of photos of Woody Allen on, like, press circuits and stuff next to these incredibly beautiful women he calls in his movies, and he just looks really, like, miserable. Yeah. Like, he'd rather be at home. That's essentially every photo of him on IMDb. <laughs> it's him next to a beautifully gra- glamorous woman in, like, a beautiful and she's dress. she's, like, really smiling. smiling <laughs> he just stuff. looks miserable. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it might be pretty bad, this show, but um, it certainly sounds intriguing. At well, least. he makes equally very good to terrible films, so it's hard to know. Maybe it'll be like one or one off. One episode will be fucking awful, <laughs> one next one will be really great. Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Woody and Miley is not the only wacky casting news to come out this week. It's been quite a fun week, actually, for bizarre screen-related news. And Joseph Fiennes, who everyone remembers probably best from Shakespeare in Love, He's been kind of quiet for a few years, but he's going to storm back onto our screens in a one-off drama commissioned by Sky Arts in which he plays Michael Jackson. Not only does he play Michael Jackson, he plays Michael Jackson going on a road trip after 9-11 with Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, it just sounds like the total word salad of a uh, an idea. It's like it's like you were playing a party game, which has like a bunch of random historical events set yeah. for a film and like famous people, and so you so just like, pick them all out of a hat, and you were like, "There's your drama." Yeah, some sort of William Burroughs I Ching style movie pitch. <laughs> it's like yeah, David Bowie's um, yeah. cut up technique used yeah. to create a like drama. But apparently, this is true, or at least it's a real apocryphal story. That on September the 11th, Michael Jackson invited Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor to his concert at Madison Square Garden. And after the concert, they were having trouble getting uh, back to California because of uh, flights being cancelled and stuff. So they all rented a car and just drove there themselves. And Brian Cox is playing Marlon Brando. (laughs) (laughs) And um, someone called Stockard Channing. Oh, right, yeah. Who I don't know. She is, she's Rizzo in Greece. And she was also oh. um, in the West Wing. Katie, West Wing fan? Yeah. But yeah, she looks yeah. like Elizabeth Taylor. Well, you could buy her as that. I but could... does she look like Elizabeth Taylor as much as Joseph Fiennes looks like Michael Jackson? Come on. No, you're right. <laughs> the man is the spitting image of Michael she Jackson. She really looks like Elizabeth Taylor, 
Right. She's got the hair. Mm. Got big hair. Do you think Brian Cox looks like an old? I mean, he's sort of old and a bit fat, isn't he? Is that all you need. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think he's as fat as Brando was, and like he was pretty like morbidly obese. Yeah, I don't know, but he's got like a jowly big face. I imagine if you put him in a fat suit, you can make him pretty fucking fat convincingly. <laughs> Who was driving? Um, <laughs> the, the, the hill today? I don't know. That's Brando. Hi, Michael. I'll take. <laughs> like, what? What are they talking about? So this is how Fines describes the script. He says it's a challenge. Which... <laughs> he says it's a fun, light-hearted, tongue-in-cheek road trip of what celebrity of that kind is like. But it's also rather beautiful and poignant about their relationships. It's probably a oh. tearjerker. It's probably they go through loads of different problems. And then at the end, they're all like crying in each other's arms. And you're like, wow, life is amazing. One thing that came to mind when reading the story is... In wake of all this diversity news following the Oscars So White thing, is it okay for Joseph Fiennes to play Michael Jackson, who was white in the noughties, but is a black man? But do you think it would be okay for a black actor to sort of white face into Michael Jackson? Yeah, that's that fine. Be, that that's would fine, be fine, right? <laughs> that would be a disgrace! <laughs> white this black actor to play this black man that, who would sort of become white that's Charlotte Rampling's uh, <laughs> take on it yeah Charlotte Rampling would be absolutely disgusted chomping at the bit she would be yeah I don't know I mean what are they like how do they make his nose that small or are they just gonna do you think it's gonna be one of those um, performances like when Bradley Cooper played the elephant man and they won't really do anything but just he would inhabit. just inhabit he'll just be Michael Jackson he will look the same you know, they won't even give him a costume or shave his moustache. <laughs> but he'll just act so well that you'll just be like, yeah, that's it. That's there won't be any props or locations. It's just the three of them in a the room. There's the king of pop there. He's sitting there with Brando. Uh, anyway, that's one. I'm I'm bloody excited for that one. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it oscar-jingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment. We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So Room, this is another movie that's kind of hard to review and the trailer gives away, it's basically a film of two halves and the trailer gives away both halves. So I'm going to spoil it as much as the trailer does. Okay. So this is directed by Lenny Abramson, who previously directed Frank and it's written by Emma Donahue based on her book of the same name. And the premise is that Jack is a five-year-old boy who lives in Room with Ma and it quickly becomes apparent to the audience that something isn't right and you realise that there are prisoners there in a Fritzl-esque situation where a man is keeping Ma prisoner and uh, has been doing so for seven years and regularly uh, sexually just rapes her every night in a sort of horrible way. Uh, and then the two manage to escape and the second half of the movie is the two of them readjusting to life outside of room. Got and it. that's enough as you need to know. I don't want to spoil anything because there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of stuff happens. A lot of stuff happens. So this is a clip of uh, Brie Larson, who plays Mark, explaining to Jack, played by Jacob Tremblay, how she came to uh, be in Room and trying to sort of explain it to his young, naive mind. Do you remember how... Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, 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 deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in Room. I'm like Alice. I was a little girl named Joy. Nah. And I lived in a house with my mom and my dad. You would call them grandma and grandpa. What house? A house. It was in the world. And there was a backyard and we had a hammock. We would swing in the hammock and we would eat ice cream. A TV house? No, Jack, a real house, not TV. Are you even listening to me? When I was a little older, when I was 17, 
I was walking home from Where school. Where was I? You were still up in heaven. But there was a guy. He pretended that his dog was what sick. What guy? Old Nick. We call him Old Nick. I don't know what his real name is. But he pretended his dog was sick. What's the dog's name? Jack, there wasn't a dog. He was trying to trick me. Okay? There wasn't a dog. Old Nick stole me. I want a different story. No, this is the story that you get. So my feelings of this film are sort of mixed to uh, negative, oh. I would say. And uh, my sort of pivy review would be that the premise of the movie is so uh, grim. It's kind of overwhelmingly grim. And I don't think the film ever escapes it as a premise. Um, but there's a lot of things to recommend about it, despite this. I think Lenny Abramson does a really good job of the material. And it would be very easy for the film to become mawkish or sentimental or feel exploitative and it's not much of a compliment but i liked how it didn't fall into many of the pitfalls you imagine that would come with adapting this kind of material and the other thing to talk about is brie larson and jacob tremblay despite his ridiculous surname he's absolutely amazing and they're so watchable and so brilliant together and i think she's definitely odds on to win uh, best actress at the academy awards they're so watchable they sort of carry you through the movie and the actual story and the narrative choices of the film aren't as strong as their performances. So basically, my problem kind of stems from the structure of the film, which is basically the first half is all set in room, uh, then they escape, and the second half is them adjusting to life. But uh, I found the premise so overwhelmingly horrible and uneasy that I had like a sort of knot in my stomach watching the first half, so I couldn't really engage with it so much because i'm just like escape please escape you know es you know movie let them escape a bit quicker and then the second half i'm so relieved they're escaped i'm like no matter what happens to them now at least they're safe you know obviously them readjusting life is kind of interesting but it's like them readjusting their life is just anything's better than living in that fucking room and this guy raping you every night so the the tension dissipated a bit in the second half exactly and it reminded me a bit of um Martha Marcy May Marlene, which has a similar loose structure, and that's about a woman escaping a cult, ab abusive cults, and then readjusting. But that film, I think, works because they intercut the two timelines, and that makes it really tense. But I, but because even though the trailer spoils it, because you don't know they're going to escape, or you know, you, even though you sort of know in the back of your head, it makes it a bit too intense for me, and I it was just like slightly, it's like kind of misery porn for me in a way yeah because if you're um cutting between two time periods i guess that he, in the grim stuff you always know that you're gonna have the relief of a scene yeah yeah that's a bit up a little bit so i was a bit confused by the decision to have such a sort of clear-cut two halves of the story and it's shown through the perspective of jack through a kid's eyes and so in a way you're somewhat shielded because the kind of relationship they have is that Brie Larson's character has shielded her son from what's actually happening and it's a slight kind of fantasy world he lives in and he doesn't really understand because he has got no reference points he's got a tv and these four uh, bare walls but I feel like it's a bit of an odd choice to have a story about a woman undergoing like horrible sexual abuse and escaping through the eyes of the kid because the kid doesn't really understand what's going on so him readjusting to real life, well, he's not, he's adjusting to real life rather than readjusting. But it's like when you're a kid, everything's normal. You know, you have no point of reference. So even though the young actor, uh, Jacob Tremblay, is amazing and I'm sure go on to like great things, 
I thought like the heart of the movie is more Brie Larson. And I was a bit kind of confused that it's a bit like if you're going to do like a movie about the subject matter, it, it's like the safest option to like have it through a second character rather than it be about her. Yeah. And there's a sort of slight borderline corny way he kind of talks in a sort of magical, doesn't use sentence structures properly. But it's a bit like, why? You know, she speaks English. Is <laughs> like like real world in TV. He's sort of like, it's like his doesn't English use, is a second language. Use definite articles. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, why? It felt like a sort of hangover from a sort of slightly lazy narrative book device. And it's like, I would say it's a very well-directed, brilliantly acted take on the material, but the material itself isn't that good. And it's not a strong enough story to support such a sort of tough subject matter. Okay. And so had I not garnered so much, so many reviews, I probably would have missed it. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to be unpacking this for a while. Just kind of bummed you out. Yeah, in a big way. Wow, that's a shame because it had so much great buzz. Well, it's tough, I would say. It's a tough watch. And many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm not entirely convinced it was worth it. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Oh, enough of that heavy. Yeah, Something not great. quite as heavy, <laughs> more sort of portentous, but certainly lighter sell uh, was The Big Short, which me and Danny saw the other day. This is a movie adapted from the Michael Lewis book about the 2008 financial crisis, and it explains the causes of the global crisis um, in America's housing market and in subprime mortgage loans through the eyes of a bunch of outsiders and oddballs who saw the crisis coming and made loads and loads of money off it. Adam McKay, the director of Anchorman, is not a fan of Wall Street or bankers. And he has taken Michael Lewis's book and uh, adapted it into a kind of zippy, semi, almost a documentary, semi-drama polemic about the evils of the financial world and the crazy stuff that happened that almost brought the global market system to its knees. So here's a clip from a scene in which Ryan Gosling, who plays a Gordon Gecko-esque super hardcore banker, speaking to Steve Carell and his team of fund managers about um, the opportunities to be made from the upcoming collapse of the world. Let's see what you got. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? A cologne? No. Opportunity. No, money. Oh, okay. I smell money. Okay. This is your basic mortgage bond. All right? The originals were simple. They were just thousands of AAA mortgages bundled together, guaranteed by the U.S. government. The modern ones are different. They're private. 
and they're made up of layers of tranches. The highest level triple A's getting paid first, the lowest rated B's getting paid last, taking on defaults first. Now, obviously, if you're buying B's, you can make more money, but they're a little risky. Sometimes they fail. Somewhere along the line, these B's and double B's went from a little risky to dog shit. Where's the trash? I'm talking rock bottom FICO scores. No income verification. Adjustable rates, dog shit. The default rates are already up from one to 4%, fellas. And if they rise to 8%, and they will, a lot of these triple Bs are going to zero too. And that, you're too close, is an opportunity. So I was quite excited for this movie. I seen a Hollywood Reporter roundtable with the guys sitting around talking about it. It's got a massive A-list cast. It's the first movie I've seen with Ryan Gosling in it for a while, so I was quite excited for that. Love Gosling. And I read the book, which I really liked. And uh, the crazy world of finance is one that definitely interests me. And this is a movie that tackles the intricacies of exactly why the mechanisms of the system are really bad, not just why the characters in the system are venal and appalling like The Wolf of Wall Street does. Uh, so all that was uh, quite good. And I'd seen that clip that we just listened to um, and thought that that did a very, struck a very good balance between the fun, zippy character, comedic interaction stuff uh, and the explanatory um, exposition about how subprime mortgage loans and CDOs and so on, how all that works. So that was quite well done. And a movie I felt didn't quite live up to that clip. No, that's probably one of the highlights of the film and Gosling as a whole. Yeah, because that, a that's a scene that really, um, where the drama really meets the explanations in a uh, good middle ground. Whereas other parts of the movie consisted of zippy, confusing montages with a bunch of slightly random images and it didn't quite gel. In the same yeah, way. it's an odd one really. I guess like, I think the movie's main aim is to explain, as, it, as in the book, I assume, yeah. is just to explain the sort of intricacies of them. and Yeah, it's almost like an educational film. It feels like it was almost made for schools or something like that. Yeah, and I think it's, it succeeded in that, like, thoroughly. It's an odd thing of, like, um, I'm going to explain these, you know, slightly complex uh, banking and financial terms through a plot which has, like, eight main characters taking place across, like, four years. Yeah. So, like, the sort of, it seems like, no, having this sort of complicated subject matter is matched somewhat narratively. And I felt, I felt a similar thing of it was a bit messy. And I listened to an interview of Adam McKay where he talked about how 24-hour party people was a big influence on the way he approached the material, which if, a film, if you haven't seen, is all about factory records in the 80s and Tony Wilson uh, forming it. And it uses, he like breaks the fourth wall, narrates things, there's like a sides, and uh, it's like quite loose and with the structure and this kind of apes that in a way and that Gosling is a sort of narrator and breaks the fourth wall but it sort of does and it doesn't and uh, there's also like another character who breaks the fourth wall and Gosling sort of comes in and out of the story so it's less a sort of cohesive decision made at the start of the film they continue throughout but more like it's just brought back whenever he needs it which I think makes the film it doesn't have a sort of confidence to its approach and it felt a bit like it was found in the edit more than it was this it's plan a a, executed. The whole movie is a bit of a jumble. It feels like they sort of threw everything in and you can sense that the filmmakers were really concerned that the subject matter was going to be boring and they are very keen to reassure you at all times that complex financial information is like super fun to learn about in a way that was borderline patronising. Sure, I think it's basically... You could probably take out all the explanation-y bits, which explain what subprime mortgages are, 
Well, like all the, the ratings CDO are, with CDO. Yeah. And that's about 25% of the film. And it's exposition in like literally someone telling you what's going on. And so it succeeds in that way. But I think where it kind of loses its way slightly is that outside the subject matter, like, do you really care for these characters? They occupy the same sort of uh, moral gray area as the people causing the collapse in the first place, but they're just benefiting. They're benefiting from the same disaster that's going to destroy people's lives. The movie sort of dealt with that. But there's a moment in the movie when they think that it's all starting and then it doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite start. The collapse that they expect is extended because the banks are covering up the defaults which are starting to happen in the housing market. And instead of um, everything nearing collapse, the prices that they think are going to go down go up and they're all kind of freaking out about it. And that didn't completely land as a dramatic moment, I think, in a no. way that it should have. Because the film is also loose and jazzy that it can't really build up to a real dramatic blow i felt a bit yeah and the times when it tries to there's a couple of moments in it when it tries to do like real human drama and that's felt a bit jarring like there's a bit where steve carell's talking about a personal tragedy to his wife who's for some reason played by marissa tomei i don't know why she's this great actress she gets like six lines and all she does is you know pat his shoulder and be like you know my husband what he's what's he doing you know kind of thing and uh and that scene had some sort of crazy directorial editing vision which i felt like it really didn't need because they were both acting it really well and uh it's like get out of my get out of the scene adam mckay just let your two actors do their jobs um yeah but on the whole i would recommend the movie i think i think it does the the subject matter that it's exploring is really fascinating and it's a very very bizarre and unique event the financial crisis and there's a lot of very interesting characters and it doesn't really um make any bones about the fact that it's just trying to educate you and that's like it's that's its main goal and a lot of the characters in it, like the character from the ratings agency and the mortgage broker guys they're not real people and it, the movie isn't really pretending that they are it's just like a paragraph from michael lewis's book that they felt like had to be in it and so they just put it in the mouth of uh, someone from the ratings agency and because the story that they're exploring is so crazy that's always interesting and they have moments in the movie which I actually quite liked as a device where someone will do something, something will happen, and Ryan Gosling will just turn to you and be like, that happened, that actually happened, you know, in order to make sure that you know that yeah. while some of it is, you know, the fictionalized chit-chat, some of it is real, you know, real moments that happen between people. And he's like, you know, make sure that the audience is aware of it, um, which is good, but not because it like is really effective cinematic device, but because it's good to know that. Yeah. Um, and it's also a very passionately angry movie. And even though I don't feel like Adam McKay is the world's greatest director or anything, you can feel his passion for the material and he wants to get his ideas across. And it's very political and it's um, intended to make you angry about the system in a way that is quite refreshing. You know, in a movie like The Wolf of Wall Street, all the political commentary is implied because, like, look how fucking awful these people are. You know? Yeah. Whereas in this movie, it's just telling you, like, this is the way things are. Here's A, B, and C reasons why the world almost collapsed, and we should all be really fucking angry about it. Um, so on that level, I thought it was, did a pretty good job. Yeah, that's what I, my sort of conclusion would be. It's a film, I'm more, it's more that I'm morally aligned with it than I think it's really good. Yeah. I think it's, like, it's entertaining, and I agree with all the points it's making yeah. rather than this like a spectacular piece of filmmaking. 
Yeah, so you know, if you don't really know what happened and you want to know what happened, there's a good, there's a really good place yeah, to yeah. start. I, I was educated. To see it. Yeah. When Graf heard something that changed his life, what he listened to. When John Cusack made a mistake for his future wife, what did she listen to? And when Michael Madsen cut a guy's ear off, what was he dancing to? When Tim Robbins showed Shawshank that he had enough, which record did he choose? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sundance is happening. It's an American film festival. A lot of crazy movies are shown there, and they acquire buzz. And one of the films that has acquired buzz of a sort is called Swiss Army Man, and it stars Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano. I first noticed it when a friend of mine on Facebook posted a story from the AV Club that was headlined something like, audiences walked out of Dinah Radcliffe's farting boner corpse movie. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I was intrigued by this. I posted it on the Film Chat Facebook page. This is how Rolling Stone describes the movie in their report from Sundance. It starts out normally enough. Hank Dano has been stranded on a desert island for so long that he's lost the will to live. When he unexpectedly spots a body that's washed ashore, his first thought is to use the belt it's wearing as a noose. And that's when the corpse starts farting. A lot. By the time the opening titles appear on screen, Hank is speeding along the surface of the ocean, yowling into the wind as he rides his new forcefully flatulent companion like a jet ski. Then he steers this makeshift vessel to a distant shore, at which point things really start to get weird. Uh, Well, you mm. can't argue with Daniel Radcliffe's willingness to take risks in the roles he's taken post-Harry Potter. Do you think it sounds like a good film? Sounds like a crazy film, but do you think it could be a good film? I think, well, the thing now is, like, can it live up to that headline and premise? Would that, is it like, you know, a sort of five-minute YouTube video that happens to be a feature film? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Machete. Everyone's like, hey, that's a cool trailer. And they made the film, you're like, yeah, yeah, not good. If I watched a trailer for the farting boner corpus, I'd be like, yeah, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> and then you watch the whole movie and you're like, well, the farting and the boner got a bit old. Yeah, well, could it sustain a 90-minute run like? <laughs> well, but I'm, I'm nothing if not intrigued. Yeah, me too. And uh, Paul Dano tends to be in good stuff, doesn't he? He's an excellent actor. I'm sure if anyone can carry riding the corpse of Radcliffe like a jet ski, it's got to be him. (coughs) Sorry. Thanks for listening. Danny, thank you for joining me. Sorry about if I was coughing a bit. I'm essentially dying. Yeah, I've got a bit of a sore throat as well. It's been a tough day for us. Yeah, yeah, but I'm essentially dying. Sorry, I'm not dying. (laughs) So, what's that? Talk more? (laughs) So... Apologies if my voice is a little croaky at times. God bless you. (laughs) Godspeed. See you next week. You know what? (laughs) Fuck beauty contests. Life is one fucking beauty contest after another. You know, school, then college, then work? Fuck that. And fuck the Air Force Academy. If I want to fly, I'll find a way to fly. You you do what you love and fuck the rest. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.